0: Media Ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at ww.corn dashstone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. You'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. A couple of weeks ago, Andy pray uh, taught on a prayer of Jesus and from John seventeen. It's what we often refer to as the high priestly prayer of Christ, and it's the longest recorded prayer of Christ. He certainly may have had a longer prayer, but as far as a recording of God's Word, uh, in God's Word of, of a prayer of Christ, uh, it's the longest one that we know. It takes up the entire 17th chapter. And today we look at what really is probably the shortest recorded prayer. We only see a small part of it. We're told that he prayed for an hour and then he comes back and yet all we have out of that hour of prayer is just a couple sentences here. And, and I would challenge you that it's probably one of the most intimate prayers that we will see in uh the Bible of of Christ praying for us. A quick question. How many of you, either you, your parents, or your grandparents, have had this picture somewhere in their house uh that you, you can just remember? Just kind of, yeah. I can remember my grandmother had this picture. I don't know that it was the exact one because there's a couple of different artists who have painted this, but this one is kind of very, very similar, if not the same one that my grandmother had. And she always had it not in a hallway, not in a back bedroom, not in some off room. She always had it in the living room. It was her favorite picture. And it was this picture of Christ. And, And then God added another intimacy to my life through this picture uh when we would go to grandma and granddad's, uh it was a small house and we had a rather large family when everybody came in for Christmas. And so uh uh the the few bedrooms were taken very quickly by aunts and uncles, my dad and my mom and, and others. And so the kids all just went to the family room, and that became the big bunkhouse, is right there, and you know, whether there was eight of us or eighteen of us, if everybody was there. Uh, that became our bed and it was in there we had the old stove and so we were plenty warm but just to make sure uh, grandma I don't know where she got all these quilts because she put about 20 quilts on top of each one of us I think number one to make sure that we didn't get cold number two so that we could not move I mean literally you were kind of pinned down for the rest of the night and I can remember one night I, I always had noticed this picture and grandma made it very clear that it was her favorite picture And one of those nights, probably when I was about eight or nine, on the floor there in the living room, probably one o'clock, two o'clock night, kind of woke up in the middle of the night, and the street light from outside was shining in through a window into the living room right on that picture. And do you notice kind of how it's got a little bit of a of a light coming down from heaven? It went right on there. And it's just one of those things that, you know, even as a young boy who had a spiritual sensitivity, I wasn't a Christian yet. But God had placed in me a spiritual sensitivity. I'm going, that's just cool. And it brought such a calm to my heart. I can just remember, no wonder that's grandma's favorite picture. But what is that a picture of? Well, it's actually a picture of what we read about today in Matthew 26. This account of uh, Christ praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this morning we're going to go look at that. and, And I hope that maybe you already have some intimacy with that. You have some familiarity with it. And yet, we really want to look at that from a couple impactful um, purposes in our life this morning. Now, this comes at the end of probably the most challenging trying week of Christ, what we often call the Passion Week. On uh, Sunday of that week, he comes in and uh, rides into Jerusalem, and everybody is praising him, and everybody is saying, you know, you are the king. And they're giving great uh, triumph to him. Uh, Christ knows that this is not the kingdom that he means by establishing a kingdom, that it's a spiritual kingdom. They don't quite get that yet. And so they're kind of, you know, why don't you make a kingdom right now? And the disciples really don't get that. So we go from Sunday to this high point where everybody's praising Christ to Monday, Jesus goes into the outer part of the temple and he sees the money changers there. And he says, all, all the people just doing things that are ungodly or, you know, should not happen in the house of God. And this is the second time in his ministry where he goes in there and he throws the tables over and really upsets a lot of the religious authority. By the time we get to Wednesday of that week, we see that the religious authority come and they begin to really um, come against him and say, who do you think you are? By what authority do you do this? So Monday he turns over the table. Tuesday they start breathing down his neck more than others. Wednesday, we don't really see a lot of things that are happening with Jesus. We're not told in the in the Gospels what's happening, but we do know one significant event is happening, and that is Judas is making arrangements with the religious leaders to tell where Jesus might be found so that they can come and arrest him. Then we come to Thursday, and, and you may know this as uh, Monday, Thursday, and this is a, a day when really it's, it's the day before the crucifixion of Christ and a lot of things are happening. We really see the, the, the climax happening in the evening when Jesus meets with his uh, disciples. They have this one last meal together. He establishes what we know as the Lord's Supper. Uh, one last night that he can have just relationship with them and, and talk to them, try to encourage them. Uh, this is also the night that he watches Judas leave the table as they're eating. And so the eleven disciples are left, but Judas leaves. Jesus knows, I, I firmly believe that Jesus knows when Judas leaves that he has but hours left before the, these religious police are gonna come and arrest him. That before they come and, and they, they, they take him off. Because he knows this, it's been prophesied. And so there's an urgency, and that's when we come upon him going to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a part of the Mount of Olives, and he begins to pray. So we're kind of familiar, if you've grown up in church, you're kind of familiar with that. I don't know about you, but I was always mystified as a, a ch- child, even as I began to think theologically and kind of, you know, critically. And I don't mean that when, you, when I say critically, I mean, you know, looking at the Bible, not in a critical nature, but in an evaluating nature, I began, you know, why does he pray that this cusp, cup pass by them? Was Jesus not wanting to, to die for us? And I always began to really struggle with that. Maybe you have too. So what is meant when he begins to pray in the garden? Now, first, I, I do want you to, to know the intimacy of this garden. Um, I, that's how Judas knew where to send the soldiers because in, in John 18.2, it says that this was a frequent place. In fact, in another part of the Gospels and another section, we see that this is probably where Jesus spent a lot of the nights of that last week. And so this is a place where they would go and pray quite often. It's actually, uh, if you look in this section, it says the Mount of Olives, or in Luke, it says Mount of Olives. Here it says Gethsemane. They're one and the same. Can we show that next picture, Mike? Uh, When I was, when I went to the Holy Land, this is, I'm on the Mount of Olives, which is really more of a hill of olives. Okay, it's not a huge mountain where you look up and go, okay, way, way, way up there. It's kind of a rolling hill. And so I'm on the Mount of Olives. And you know when it says that Jesus was on the Mount of Olives and he prayed over Jerusalem? That's Jerusalem. See the wall? See where the gold dome is? There's a wall just on this side of it. And that's the wall that surrounds Jerusalem. And so that's Jerusalem. And a lot of times in the Bible it talks about going up to Jerusalem. It physically was up. Why? Because you're on a mountain here. If you look, it slopes down. That's called the Kidron Valley. And then you go up to Jerusalem. When you read about a mountain, you read about a valley and a city, in your mind, don't you kind of expand that out like, man, that's like miles apart? But it's not. It really is very, very close. And so the Mount of Olives is, is where I'm standing there. Can we show that next picture? Next picture, this is the Garden of Gethsemane. And one of the things you find out real quick when you take a tour of the Holy Land is a lot of the sites where Jesus did these things are approximations. Like when you go to the Sea of Galilee and they talk about the Sermon on the Mount... He did preach it somewhere. You know, you put all the the Gospels together, you can say, okay, maybe it was about 500 yards that way or maybe about 500 yards this way, but somewhere on this side of the mountain, right in here, is where he preached the Sermon on the Mount. And so you feel kind of that connection. But there are approximations. We don't know for sure. The Garden of Gethsemane is different from that. The Garden of Gethsemane is, is still there today as it was Two thousand years ago, and it's really kind of a small space. It was on the whole tour of the Holy Lands that was probably my favorite place because you didn't have to approximate and say, "Okay, you know, somewhere on the Mount of Olives Jesus prayed." And so, whether I'm standing on the actual place, this place or that place, uh, when I got b- uh, baptized in the Jordan River, you know, it's the Jordan River that's where Jesus was baptized. But I didn't know if, is this the exact place? You go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the exact place. See that tree there? There's several trees there that are over 2,000 years old. They had one that did die, and, and they cut it, and they were able, you know, you can tell by the rings. Some of those trees that are there now were there when Christ prayed this prayer. And so there was an intimacy with that. There, there was, there's truly this connection that you said, I, I'm here where Jesus prayed this most intimate of prayers. And it was by far my favorite place. Now what happened there? Look at Matthew 26, starting with verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's going to be James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So... They had the Lord's Supper. They had that last supper. Judas goes off during that supper. There's 11 disciples left. They go down to the Mount of Olives, or up to the Mount of Olives. Now they go to the Western Slope, which is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. You can throw a rock if you've got a really good arm, those two places. And so he begins to pray. And now there's only 11 disciples. He tells them to sit. And then he takes what we call the inner circle, James, John, and Peter, And they move just a little bit farther over. And then when they get established, Jesus goes just a little bit farther than that. It says, a stone's throw. Just, I mean, feet, 15, 20, 25 feet. But he gives them a command. And we find that command in verse 38. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful. What's the next three words there? Even to death. Really make mark of that in your mind, in your heart. He wasn't just having a bad day. Jesus is near the culmination of his whole call. He's going to go to the cross, and it says that he is very sorrowful, even to death. And we still to this day, as scholars, as thinkers, as studiers of the Word of God, wonder, okay, what does he mean? Physical death, spiritual death, all, you know, all these different things. What, what is he talking about that this death is going to happen? Look what he says. Remain here and watch with me. So he tells them to sit, but he tells them to watch. He doesn't just say, sit and hang out and I'll be back in a little way. No, they were giving very specific instructions as he tells them, sit, watch. And as we read in the other Gospels, because this story is recorded in three of the four Gospels, and when we do what we call harmonize the Gospels, that is we take each one of those and we begin to look at the different vantage points, we get this picture that Jesus is very pronounced, sit and watch. What are they watching for? The guards that are going to come and arrest Jesus? No. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. He doesn't even say pray for me. Even though he is sorrowful, even unto death. He says you pray for yourself. This is a time that you're going to be sifted like wheat. This is a time that you're going to feel overwhelming temptation and so he puts them on watch duty not just for himself and his own protection he puts them on watch duty for their own protection that they might fall that they would not fall into temptation now look at verse 39 so he leaves the the he's got the 11 moves the three over here and then verse 39 and going to the little father he fell on his face and he prayed saying my father if it be possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. How many of you are familiar with that prayer? I mean, you've heard it before. Yeah. Well, most of us have. In this prayer, I would say that one of the most intimate prayers, one of the most important prayers, not that there's non-important prayers of Jesus, but this is a prayer that leads to our salvation. This is a prayer that leads Jesus to willingly die on the cross for you and me. This is a prayer that provides for us a sufficient Savior. This is a prayer that enables us to become the very children of God. One of the most important prayers that Jesus prays on our behalf. But it doesn't seem like in one way that he's praying for us. He's praying, okay, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What we see in this prayer is his humanity. What we see here is his deity. We see his humility, his obedience, his reliance upon the Father, even in the most difficult situation in his life. Now, what is this cup? When I was a young kid, let this cup pass. I didn't know what that meant. Just like I didn't know what an Ebenezer was about, okay, raise your Ebenezer. There's just a lot of church terms I'm going, I don't know. I'll sing it because everybody's singing it, but... I don't know what this Ebenezer is. I don't know what this cup is. So what is this cup? It is a metaphor, but it's a very important metaphor. It's a metaphor for God's fury and wrath upon sin. This cup, a metaphor for all of God's wrath and fury in his holiness against sin and the sin of man. Think of it this way. In this cup, this metaphorical cup, every disobedient act, in this cup, every vile act, every murder, every rape, every child molestation, I don't want to get graphic here and keep on, everything that you can imagine and the things that we cannot even begin to imagine, the vileness of humanity in this cup. And it's thrust upon Jesus on the cross. And and he knows this. So in human terms, we begin to see this humanity of Christ. He is fully God, but he is fully man. I I told the first service this morning, I'm kind of a math guy. Numbers make sense in my mind. And yet those have never made sense. I trusted by faith that he was 100% God and 100% man. I don't understand that because that's 200%. If you told me 50% God... 50% 50% man. Would that make sense to your mind? And yet what we're told in the beauty of this, just like the Trinity, three in one and one in three, I, I don't get that, but I believe it. This is the miracle of God. Jesus was 100% human, but he was 100% deity and God. And what we see here is in this, is that Jesus, is, he doesn't have a human desire To drink from this cup. There is a human, natural, human recoil from doing something that is very unpleasant. Do you have a natural recoil from doing things that are unpleasant to you? I was listening weeks ago to Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, and I just love listening to him. And he was preaching and he said uh, that he has a natural recoil, as I do, of hypodermic needles. I mean, you just show me a picture of hypodermic needle, I will start sweating. I don't like needles. I don't like shots whatsoever. And he was talking about that even though he knows that maybe he needs to go get this shot because it's what's best for him, there is a natural recoil. And he said, I will turn white as a ghost right before they, you know, give me this shot. And I said, amen, brother, I can identify with you. It's a natural recoil because it's unpleasant we don't like it. Why would there be an affection for this in his humanity when he, in his full deity, knows the vileness of sin? Does that make sense? We just went from humanity to deity. Make up your mind, Pastor. Which one are you talking about? Both. Because he can't separate the two. He's the fullness of both of those. So his humanity recoils at this. Why? Because his deity knows the full weight of sin. Do you and I know the full weight of sin? Do you and I really comprehend God's holy anger and wrath against sin? No. Because I'm a numbers guy, because things are quantitative in my mind, do we even understand 50% of God's wrath against man's sin? That may be quite generous. I don't know. I just know that we do not grasp how holy God is, and I know that we don't grasp how sinful mankind is. That that gap that we think is about like that, well, Jesus bridged that gap. We could not even imagine the reality of that gap. But Jesus does, because he's fully God. He's fully deity. So he knows the wrath of God against this, but he's also fully human. And so there's this natural recoil. And some people will say, well, you know, I wouldn't want nails pierced in my hands either or a crown of thorns on my head. And that is part of it. Let's not make light of the physical torment of what Jesus was about to face. Let's not make light of that. But I would challenge you that that was not the total recoil that he's experiencing here. Yes, there's going to be a physical aspect of what Jesus is about to do. I personally believe that the greater two aspects that he is recoiling from and that he is sorrowful even unto death, as it says, is the relational aspect. He and the Father for eternity and eternity past always one. And yet Jesus, because he has full understanding in his deity to know that God cannot be with sin, what does he understand? That when he takes on the sin of the world, that the Father will turn away. He gets it. We may not get it, but he gets it. So there is a physical aspect. There is a relationship aspect that he knows that the fellowship with the Father for the moment is going to be broken when he takes on the sin of the world. But there's also a spiritual aspect. The Bible says it this way in Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. Do you think Christ had a grasp of this curse? His deity, his knowledge, he understands. Oh, okay, this is going to be like a curse on you. So tells me, a woman came into my office one time. I didn't do what she wanted to do, and she, she pronounced a curse on me. I went out afterwards and told my administrator there, I said, Well, there's a curse on me. I don't know whether to take this seriously or not. She seemed pretty adamant that she had placed a curse on me. But I was laughing it off a little bit. Do you think Jesus, when we come to Galatians 3.13, He became the curse for us so that we, you know, because this, this death that we deserve is a curse. Do you think He grasped that? Yes. There's a spiritual aspect. Folks, there's a relational aspect. There is the physical aspect. Let's not belittle the physical aspect, but I don't know that it would really be the top one. I think separation from the Father, this relationship aspect, probably is more dominant than just, oh, this is really going to hurt a lot. Not to minimize the hurt and the pain that he went through, but to maximize how much he uh, uh, loved the fact that he and the Father were one. That's what Andy preached a couple weeks ago. I I pray that you will be unified as the Father and I are unified. This is why he's sorrowful unto death. This is why there's a human recoil. And this is why he prays, I believe, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But his prayer doesn't end there. It it continues on, and his desire is to be ever obedient to the Father. And so he prays, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There's a complexity to this statement that I don't know that we will ever understand. Well, we try to be informed, smart, theological people. I don't know that our human capability is ever going to understand the complexity of this. Because there's an intimacies, Spurgeon called it one time, he said, the intimacies of the Trinity that we will never understand until we are face-to-face with the Trinity. And I think Spurgeon was right. There's just a level that we get, but there's a level that we'll never get this side of heaven. What does it mean? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There's two things that while we may not have full understanding of this, that I do think that we can have understanding. We can grasp some of it. Here's the two things that I think we can grasp from Jesus' prayer. Number one, Jesus does not sin by asking the Father if it is possible for this cup to pass. Temptation is not sin. Giving into temptation is sin. And Jesus is tempted here. There's a temptation going on. There's other times that we read that Jesus was tempted. And you might go, I don't really like the thought that Jesus was tempted. You should love the fact that Jesus was tempted. Here's why. Because we're going to read later on. he That's what makes him a great high priest. In our darkest moments, family, in our darkest moments, in our times that we are sorrowful even unto death, We're going, man, nobody knows how I feel. There is that Christ who says, I know how you feel. Because I exposed myself to that. Because I was 100% human. I was 100% deity, but I was 100%. And I let the fullness of that humanity be exposed. But without sin. But here's the other thing. Please grasp this. If you're a note taker, please make much of this word. Jesus does not sin by asking the Father if it's possible. Jesus does not stray by asking the Father if it's possible. He doesn't stray. The whole life of Christ, the human life of Christ, point A to point Z, He never strays. He never varies. And He doesn't vary here. It's really important for us to understand that. He's asking if it is possible, but he, He says, but your will, your will, He surrenders to the will of God. He does not stray. Is there temptation there? Yes, because there is natural human recoil to anything that is unpleasant to us. As simple as a hypodermic shot, this the complexity on every aspect of of life, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Do you get that? But don't think that this is a strain. It is a temptation, but it is not a strain. Look what happens, verse 40 and 41. We see this humanity of Christ. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. Remember what he commanded them? Sit and do what? Keep watch. And even then he said, you know, you pray for yourself. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. So he's been praying for about an hour. We just get this one, God has preserved for us this one sentence, uh, uh, this, you know, this statement here. So we just get a little bit of the prayer, but it's the most important part, I believe. This is what God wanted us to see. Verse 41, watch and pray that I may not enter into temptation. Is that what he prays? I said keep watch because Satan is ready to sift you like wheat. And you pray for you not to fall in temptation. And then he said something that I think that we could get a hearty amen to this morning because we've experienced. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Anybody else ever experienced that? Yeah. I mean, what did he mean by that? Do you think that Peter, James, and John purposely said, you know, he told us to stay awake, but we'll show him I'm going to sleep. Do you think that was the attitude of Peter, James, and John? No, but it had been in this exhausting week. There was this Passion Week. All these events going on, this had been dramatic. They are physically exhausted. Their desire is to be pleasing to what the command of Christ was. And yet their physical body... I mean, has that ever happened to you? Do you you wake up in the morning and say, you know, I I just choose purposely to be disobedient to the commands of Christ today? Or is it your heart, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you say, you know, I want to follow you today. I want to be strong. And yet, during that day, as much as you have said, okay, I want to desire to follow Christ, the Spirit is willing. How many of you have found out that during that week, the, that day that the flesh is weak. Yeah. This battle that goes on. And so that's what he says. Don't forget that Jesus faced temptation just like we do, but temptation itself is not a sin. He says the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. In the case of the disciples, they don't really want to go to sleep and yet they do because there's this battle going on between just their spirituality and and their physicality and all those things. This is what's also happening in the battle of Jesus Christ. This is where we begin to see another avenue from Luke's gospel. One of the beautiful things is that God has given us how many gospels? Four. Four different vantage points. To give you an illustration, let's say that up here at the intersection of Gun Springs and Levin, there was a, a wreck. And Mark, you just happen to be pulling out of the church, so you're over here. Eric, let's say that you and Missy are on the other side. You're coming down Gum Springs and you see the wreck from there. Okay. Seth, you and your family, you're traveling from the winder side of 11 and you're kind of coming back this way. And Rally, let's say that you and Tracy are coming from Jefferson back this way. You all see the wreck, but how many different aspects, vantage points do you have on that wreck? Four. And so you're all going to see the same event, and yet it's going to be a little bit different because it's just what you the vantage point. And one of the beauties of the gospel is that God has given this gospel, this story of the good news of the work of Christ to four different people. He allows them to have different purposes. One is Matthew is written for Jewish people. We have some that are designed to be for the Gentiles. And he gives these four different aspects. I say this not to bore you with those details, but to say, okay, Luke brings in something that Matthew doesn't say. Look what Luke says. And he's already, by the time we pick up what Luke says, he, Jesus already prayed the first time. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, there's actually a physical thing that doctors know that you can be under so much pressure, so much tense uh, things in your life that actually it causes the the corpuscles to, to do something where blood can enter into the sweat glands and it won't be like blood coming out, but it will be a mixture of blood in the sweat glands. Whether that happened or whether this is symbolic and it was just like sweat uh, drops of blood dropping to the ground, we don't know for sure, but certainly there is an, a, the human capability to be under so much stress and strain and that would fit the situation that, that Jesus did sweat. Even his sweat was kind of filled with some blood. Well, we don't know the exactness. But why would Luke say that as opposed to the other gospel writers? He a He's a doctor. He's going, man, I just noticed something that maybe went right over the, tax, the former tax collector Matthew's head. And so he notices this. But there's something that he tells us here that the other gospels writers don't. That God sends an angel to minister to Christ. I've always been amazed at the humility of that verse. Who created everything in the world? Specifically, as we look at the Trinity. Christ. It says nothing was created that he did not create. I mean, God is, the Father is the creator, but, but specifically when we really look at that, it says nothing has been created. So Christ is the creator. He, who creates the angels? Christ does. And, and yet here, the Father sends part of his creation, what, what Christ has created, to minister to him. Isn't that not overwhelmingly humbling? Some of you have had the occasion to give care to your mother and father in their last weeks or days. Last couple of days of my daddy's life, they're in the hospital as he succumbed, his body succumbed to cancer. was asked to, by my dad to do some of the most humbling things. Because your daddy's your hero. My daddy was all of 5'10". And then he walked in my heart eight foot tall. He's the strongest man I ever knew. And in those last days, son, can you come over and help me put on this diaper? Do do you get the point here, guys? Do you get the intimacy by which our Savior, God himself, Humbles himself to be ministered to by something that he created. So God the Father sends this angel. And we don't know any more of the story. But we do see uh, maybe a renewed focus. Again, he never strayed. Here's two things I can draw from this. Look at verse 42, back in Matthew again, Matthew 26, 42. Out of that humility that that Luke tells us about, it says, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. Does that sound very similar to what he prayed before? A lot of people said, read it and say, okay, he, he prayed the same prayer. No. It may have some of the same words, but it is a dramatically different prayer. First time, if it is possible, if there's another way, let this cup pass. Now, especially when you look at the original language, there's a definite, definitive commitment, since there is no other way, this is how we would say it in our, our language today, since there is no other way, I drink it, let your will be done. First one, not my will, but your will be done. He, he even mentions in the first prayer, my will. Does he mention his will here? No. So he's laser focused. No mention of his own will. A commitment to the will of the Father upon him. Two things I draw from that. Number one, because after he prays that, he goes back the second time and guess what the disciples are doing? I mean, look at verse 43 and 44. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, for now for the third time, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. When he comes back the third time, guess what he finds them doing? Sleeping. Two things that we draw from that. But please try to make this connection in your mind and your heart. Two things that are, I think, very important for us to understand. What we see, going off and praying, coming back, they're sleeping. Going off and praying, coming back, and they're sleeping. Going off and praying, coming back, and they're sleeping. There's two things that we see here. The continued weakness of the disciples and the continued commitment of Jesus Christ. And I believe... Bobby's own little opinion that counts for about that much. This is what encourages him. He's sorrowful even to death. And I, I think this encourages the Savior. Okay, there is no other way. These guys are completely lost without this work that I will do. I mean, in in our humanity, have you ever heard that God helps those who helps themselves? No, that's in the Bible. There, No, it's not. It's not in the Bible. But we sure have taken it as kind of this biblical thing. Because think about your own nature. Are you willing to help somebody that seemingly accepts that help and wants to help themselves? Hey, here's $100. I hope it gets back on your feet. It helps you to get back on your feet. And then if they show some earnestness, then you may even give them another $100 a couple weeks later. Because we see that and we say, man, they're trying. And that kind of builds up this willingness, this desire for us to help even that much more. Do you always feel that way if you were to give somebody $100 and they go off and let's just say that they totally blew that. They say, good, lottery tickets. And your humanity, does that compel you? You say, man, in fact, here's 500 this time. So this human nature that says, okay, it may not be in the Bible, but, you know, maybe God really does help those who help themselves. I, I want you to see something here, guys, the intimacy of this moment. He comes back and they're sleeping every single time. And to me, this is symbolic of their spiritual need that is so great within them. And instead of Jesus said, well, you know, if you're not going to stay awake and at least do what I'm done, then, then forget it. He sees no worth in what they've done. But get this, we were never deserving. Don't ever think for a moment that somehow we have been deserving of this tremendous grace and this sacrifice of Christ. As it says in the Old Testament, that that our, our best works are like filthy rags before a holy God. In fact, I think this sleepness is a reminder of their great need and their need for a great Redeemer. This is an amazing prayer. teaches us the love by which our Savior loves us. It shows his unswerving commitment to, to die for us in spite of our sins. So here's two things I think that we can draw from this passage this morning. Number one, good theology is always built on actual events i 'm a self confessed theology geek because i 'm just a geek. well, that could be, but mostly it 's because you know I talk about my metaphorical two o'clock in the morning that you you view life at two. PM during the afternoon when the sun is out in one way, but two at night. Two at night in the darkness, everything is so. There's a self awareness of of all the vulnerabilities of life. I don't need feelings at two o'clock in the morning. I need truth. I don't need feelings you'll make me feel better, God. No, I need to know that He's made a commitment and that He's a promise keeper. That He's a way maker. That that's not just a song. That this is built on truth. Why? Because this truth is built on actual events. This isn't a storybook. This isn't a parable. There was one guy. His name was Jesus. And he was like a... No, this was the son of the living God. This event happened. Good theology is built on actual events. Second truth for this morning and then we'll close Christ's suffering was real but so was his sufficiency without the humanity of Christ we don't have a sufficient savior if he's just 100% God and not 100% we don't have a sufficient savior Bobby, I don't know that I agree with Go read Hebrews. <laughs> read Hebrews, and it's going to make it very, very clear that it needed to be a blood sacrifice, that he needed to be made like us just in every way. In fact, here's what it says in Hebrews 12:2, verse 14 and 15, a little bit of that. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We have a natural fear of death, of of the future, of what's going to happen. So the only way the victory is not just that he was fully God, but that he was fully man. And here's maybe the most beautiful part to me. What the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we and yet without sin. Was the temptation real there in the garden? Yeah. Sorrowful unto death. And and we're given kind of a picture of that. We can kind of calculate maybe what that was. But this side of heaven, I don't know that we'll have a full understanding, a full grasp. What does it really mean that he was sorrowful unto death? But I know the next time that I at least think, feel, experience something, I'm going, man, I am sorrowful unto death. Have you ever been there? And maybe it was an exaggeration of what you were feeling. Maybe, you know, you just hurt your thumb, and you I am sorrowful unto death. And somebody goes, no, you're not. But don't be surprised at one time when your mind, your heart, your emotions, your synapses say, man, you're, you're sorrowful unto death. You feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Here's the good news of the gospel. Not only is our He's sufficient for our salvation. He's a sufficient high priest during this life. So that when we feel sorrowful and to death, we're overwhelmed by life. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a sufficient Savior for our life, for our death, for our eternity. Perhaps that's why. This was my grandma's favorite picture. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you that you've provided for us not just a, a Savior, but a sufficient Savior a high priestly Savior, a Savior that not just bought our eternity, but experienced, Father, things beyond what we could ever imagine, and yet was without sin. A Savior who came back to find his three closest earthly friends sleeping and sleeping and sleeping. And yet instead of saying, well, you don't deserve this, Father, we get the reality, they never deserved it. This wasn't a last failing. Their their life was a failing when it came to their need for a Savior. So, Father, will you show that in our own lives? Because when we begin to see, Father, how we are not sufficient, even in our best of days, we begin to find, Father, the sufficiency of this Savior. We see your goodness to us. So Father, I thank you that when Jesus says, let this cup pass, that we see the fullness of humanity. For Father, this is something that allows him to be now our sin sacrifice and a great high priest for us. So that when we feel like we are overwhelmed with sorrow, sorrow to the point of death, we can cry out and say, there is one who knows us and there is one who can provide for us. Victory. Father, how good you are. How great you are. And Father, we close this service this morning by proclaiming that in song, your goodness, your grace, Father, how great Thou art. As we pray all of this in the hope of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online